Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week in the third in a special series of summer on matrescence, the process of motherhood. I'm with co-author of Falestine and in-house writer of Tea Ottolenghi, Yotam's co-author on eight of the biggest food books, including the million-seller Ottolenghi Simple and mother of teen twins and a tween, Tara Wigley. And before I might have been embarrassed or kind of, but actually I was on the floor laughing and it was so nice to be kind of seen as like, as a bit of a quirky, aubergine obsessed, lemon head mum. And for that to be kind of okay. Her hilarious and often biting ditties on Instagram have won her a new audience, which is interested in her own voice. And when she asked me what I thought of an early idea of a book version of her rhymes, I knew it would be a shoo-in. How to Butter Toast is a recipe book without recipes, a rhyming route through the how-tos of cooking. But before we discuss the much more chaotic reality of life at home and where she's at with her matrescence, I asked her how she came up with the original idea for the book. As the book's uh, official uh, godmother, I can I can tell you what you want to, to know, Jilly, because were it not for you, this book would not be seeing the light of day because uh, for lots of people who might have said no to the uh, vision of a rhyming book full of recipes without any recipes in it uh, wasn't the most obvious pitch and my kids kept saying you just got to get one person to say yes one person at a time one person at a time one person at a time tell us the pitch I mean you know when you first emailed me I got it immediately you clearly had a very very good idea I mean I'd been following your ditties on lockdown and as has had tens of thousands of people um tell us about that very first idea what was in your head I mean, the, the the process of writing uh, rhymes and ditties during lockdown was a, sort of doing rhymes is something I've always done whenever I sort of want to make sense of something or kind of uh, sort of impose structure on it. I would always put it into kind of rhyming form. Um, and I was thinking about that this week and I was thinking, why do I do that? And I think <laughs> without going straight into kind of therapy session, I think it was because I've always thought that whatever I have to say is either stating the obvious or boring. Um, I've just always thought that in my life. And so I think in a way, uh, imposing the, the challenge and the structure of making it rhyme almost kind of validates what I think is kind of obvious. Um, and yet this book is full of things that are very obvious. And yet a lot of people just don't know so it's full of rhymes about things to do with how to poach an egg how to roast a chicken how to make a tomato sauce how to make a martini all these things that are and should be so simple but yeah I think the person at home is so overwhelmed with the information because there's so much out there and all these kind of micro differences about how to do these basic things that we've lost a sense of the fact that to roast a chicken all you need to do is get a good chicken and then get some heat and then get some fat and then put the fat on the chicken and put the chicken in the heat and it's going to be fine. We've sort of lost lost that. So there's this sort of paradox of one hand, there's so much information and yet we're all confused about just the really, really, really simple thing. It's about finding form, isn't it? It's about, it's so interesting what you say and I just want to unpack just a little bit of that. A rhyme is resolution in a way, isn't it? It's a very satisfying way of 
uh, get taking information and making it very palatable and uh, having those aha moments, but also those yes moments. It's a very sort of satisfying landing when uh, there's a good rhyme. And what you're doing is you're taking a mass of information. It's it's food chemistry. It's all the stuff that you've picked up from Ballymaloo cooking school from Yatamatalengi over you know what ten years of working with him. It's all that information distilled into something that is very simple. And that's the point, isn't it? It's simple to feed. It's not quite so simple to cook. And what you've done is really kind of give us very easy ways into something much more complicated. Was that the plan? Uh, that was the plan. The plan was to reassure people that there are different ways of doing things and it's all going to be okay. The plan was also to entertain because... Uh, you know, I think the best kind of food writing is is kind of suggestions and and kind of possibilities and entertainment and stories rather than kind of barking instructions about this only way to do things. Um, so yeah, it was it was reassuring, entertaining, um, and yes, I mean, I would start off with this sort of huge, huge amount of research, um, both through what I've picked up over the last decade but also sitting down with my books again um and then and then I loved kind of actually just going to a room without a computer with a pen and a paper and then kind of and then condensing it all down and down and down um and as you say there is a real containment to then sort of getting to the end of that rhyme and that's that's it that's it sort of that's that's everything that I have to say about tomato sauce or boiled eggs and I never need to say sort of any of it again. But it's also what you have to say and finding a voice is something really fascinating with you. You've been a very open ghost of, of Yotamotolengi for 10 years. Well yeah we don't really use the word ghost it's more I mean we really it's real like collaborators we're, we're writing collaborators there's no there's no secret and I think it's quite Amazing, actually, that we have this, Yotam and I have this relationship, um, that's very open. Uh, it's not, it's not secret because I think lots of people do have, have, have ghostwriters who, who never, who never get to kind of share the platform. And Yotam's incredibly and really unusually generous in that because anyone involved in food or the creation of books is by nature very controlling because you have to control the narrative. And he's really, really rare in, in wanting to kind of pull people up to the platform with him. So it's, I've been very much a collaborator rather than a ghost. Yeah, absolutely. But in your notes you sent to me, you said, um, it does feel a little bit like being a mistress. Um, <laughs> Not that I'd know. But it is about being somebody a little bit hidden. No, it's true. And every, every my, my husband would point out that every time a book is published in September, I go into this sort of slightly kind of, not bitter, because that's that would position the the relationship in in a kind of misconstrued way um but yeah as with a mistress i imagine all this magic happens behind closed doors and then you you go to the parties um and you're completely invisible and and i'll meet people for whom i have you know given their written a quote for them uh and and yet i am completely invisible and that is the job that's the nature of the job and yet and yet that's not straightforward you know it's it's not straightforward and there's there's a there's a sort of attention there and yet if it weren't for you know if it weren't for Yotam then like he wouldn't have the kind of the loyal team around him that do do stick with stick with him but, and also it's a real gift that I've I've uh, as someone who's not not naturally 
confident to have had the gift of honing my writing craft for over a decade under another name. That's really, really amazing. And it was much more terrifying writing Falestine under my own name uh, than it has been writing columns for the New York Times that I've done for years. Well, exactly. And as, as your term, and you do talk about voice a lot. To, well, you've, you've told me quite a lot about voice because you've been one of my uh, Zoom guests on my food writing retreat and you send me lots of notes in advance and I've, I've been able to pass those on and people are really amazed at what you say about voice because it's so obvious in many ways. One I love, one of the ones I love most is be Venetia Taylor, who is your more <laughs> confident version, version of yourself. <laughs> I mean, it was transformative. I was walking into my A-level English and I was, I, I was so nervous. And my friend Sarah just, she just said to me, she's like, just, just, just pretend you're a Venetia Taylor. Just do it. And literally my body language changed. I walked into this hall, <laughs> sat down and I smashed it. And it was just bizarre. So yeah, it's kind of be Venetia Taylor, but also, but then don't try and be Nigella Lawson. <laughs> you know, you kind of like be the more confident version of yourself, but don't, don't try and write like someone else because that, that's never going to work and have the confidence to be yourself. Like speak to the person that you feel safe with and, and say what you'd say to your friend in the kitchen rather than kind of put it, you know, trying to be something that you're not. Well, exactly. So writing those books and those features for the New York Times as Yotam is a much more confident version of Tara Wigley. But this, I wonder if the reason that you have chosen such a different style of writing, it's, you know, really breaking the mould, is because you actually had to produce a completely different voice which again isn't quite tara you know i i want to see the 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 food book of uh, in tara's writing i still don't know how you write other than in ditties do you know what i mean that's the next one that's interesting because because for the last few years yotam has been saying the same to me he believes that i've got a book in me that's 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 something and i'm not sure how to butter toast is the book that he he kind of he thought and yet you've you know hit a real nail on the head kind of who am I when I'm not writing um yeah who am I (laughs) who am I but then I mean but then I think that's true about anyone who writes in the first place for me it was very much sort of slightly back to the therapy chair of kind of feeling like I've never really been listened to or kind of as a youngest child in a big family and um and then actually, if you write something down, it's almost saying, you know, you've got to listen to me now because I'm putting it clever. So it's all it's all kind of it's all linked. It is. Absolutely. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that and and finding your voice as a mother uh, when we would talk a little bit more about matrescence. But let's go through some of your food moments, first of all, from How to Butter Toast. Um, first of all, why why was it called How to Butter Toast? It was called How to Butter Egg. Well, it was called How to Boil an Egg. And then we realised that a certain Mrs. Smith had taken taken that title already. Um, and then How to Butter Toast. I mean, it's a good title for a book because it seems very obvious. And then actually everyone has incredibly strong opinions about how to butter toast and how to cut the toast and what the toast should be and whether it and should be triangles should be. or squares and what the butter should be. How and, cold it should be. You know, Nigella nearly broke the internet last year sort of with her twice buttered toast. Um, <laughs> and then it started from a slight joke is that my daughter Scarlett said to me uh, that when she goes to university, if she's ever missing me, um, all she needs to do is just burn some toast because the smell will, will remind <laughs> remind her of me because even though I am some would say a competent cook and a 
competent food writer, my ability to burn toast is uh, impressive, I'd say. But you chose how to peel a banana and other things as your first food moment. Um, two moments from when you first started cooking. Um, from uh, First at Ballymaloo. Tell us about peeling and segmenting an orange and, and the kind of that sort of tiny, tiny detail that you get <laughs> at a cookery school and what that meant to you. Well, yeah, I think I had been, we had been taught that at, at Ballymaloo, how to kind of sort of top and tail and then you get your knife and then you sort of cut between between the segments. But I don't think I'd really taken the lesson on fully. And then in my first ever catering job when I was out of, out of cookery school, it was just me and one lady in a sort of basement in a hotel in Mayfair. And she just gave me about four oranges and said, oh, can you just, just kind of segment them and, and then sort of chop it up? And I, I was absolutely kind of sweating and didn't know how to do it. And then I started peeling the oranges by hands and then all the kind of zest and pith was still on there. And I just thought, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) And it could have been so simple for me just to say to her, you know, how do I, how, how do I, or how do you want me to peel an orange? And she was taking for granted that I knew what I was doing, which was completely fine on her part. Um, And instead of kind of asking, I sort of went straight into kind of panic and just absolutely completely ballsed up and didn't know what I was doing. Um, and then the same was true actually when I was, was at Morrow for a few months and, and I was told to crush a load of cardamom. Um, and I just didn't know whether you were meant to take the cardamom seeds out of the pod and then crush them or crush the pod whole and pass it through. And again, I don't know kind of what stopped me just asking someone, uh, and so how to peel a banana and other things sort of takes this idea of all these things that we sort of, we assume that everyone knows about how to, how to peel garlic or take seeds out of a pomegranate or even hold a kitchen knife. And yet people can go through their whole life not holding a kitchen knife properly because no one's ever showed them or they don't ask. And yet if you kind of skill up in these basic ways, it's so empowering. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not necessarily about doing things right. It is about asking isn't it and it is the the this is what i mean about these kind of underlying themes you get a lot of these underlying things you get a lot of actual information that is really really useful and that you would probably only ever get in top restaurants or in cookery schools but it's also about asking and the assumption that other people know more than you do and the the shame and I was talking to Shivi Ramata yesterday about shame. And mm. she was talking about the shame of mothering. And we'll talk a lot more about mothering later. But this is an example. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, not being able to ask, not giving yourself permission to, to do things well enough because you, ha- you can't find that space. Yeah, or, to do, ask. Or, or do things badly. You, you, in your notes, you, you talk about actually trusting in the process, you know, not necessarily getting it right shooting in all directions and putting yourself out there getting out of your comfort zone and and it was it was because you had that image of yourself in the reflection of in a window in Finsbury Park tell us about that moment when you were pushing the double buggy <laughs> along and you had that epiphany oh my goodness we all have these epiphanies um yeah I mean I have my my big double buggy and uh and then I had this sort of dog attached to it that we'd picked up in in Bosnia where we'd been living for for years and Chris had gone off to work and I was kind of off to the park and and I was happy like everything was everything was good this is what I wanted it was all all great but I just caught my reflection as you say in this in this shop shop glass in uh in Finsey Park of of sort of dog lead around my my wrist and 
and uh, bottles in babies' mouths, and and I just I just kind of had that that moment of knowing that that I wanted more, and I had a real uh, a sort of knowledge that there's no such thing as kind of waiting for the right time. Like the stars just don't align. Sometimes you've just got to not think things through and just shoot in all directions and trust that something will will stick. And I think you can spend your life kind of waiting for for the right time. Uh, and then my granny died and she left all of her grandchildren exactly the amount of money to the penny that the the course at Ballymillie was for three months. And instead of doing the sensible thing, I just just did it, just signed up. And sort of six weeks later, I was there with, with these 18-month-old twins and this same bloody dog. Um, and and then actually it was Darina Allen who really was the one who makes you believe that, that sort of anything is possible. And actually, I think if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have emailed Yotam out of the blue. And, you know, she's just got this little black book kind of you know, contact. And she just, she just tells everyone to email everyone and just sort of believe, just sort of believe in the, and, um, and, and I, I do think, I don't know about other industries, but the food community, I think is, is really generous in sharing its time and knowledge. And there's, there's no sense of kind of, of there not being enough space for everyone. Um, and again, with, you know, how to butter toast, there's so many reasons why a book full of rhymes about food that's got no recipes in it uh, shouldn't come to market. And yet, if you just kind of shoot in enough directions, uh, something's going to stick. <laughs> it's a really p- empowering message. And I love that. And I I know that, Darina, I, I wonder if it is because she's older now she's got that experience and, and again bringing it back to matrescence it, it, it's there's the process there's time involved in becoming that person and I think that there's a point where you you know I'm, I'm only just getting there now where I think mm. just do it you know what, what have you got to lose but you know 20 years ago I mm. couldn't have done that I couldn't have emailed Yotam I would now absolutely not even a question about it and uh, I just couldn't have done that 20 years ago it takes time. And so I, you know, I try and empower and elevate other people as much as I can now in a way that I just didn't even know mm. how to 20 years ago. So I think there is that sort of a element of, yes, there's generosity, but there's also time and experience um, and that you then pass that on to other people. Um, you're, it, it goes very nicely into your, um, your second food moment, which is how to make pancakes, which is another chapter in the book. I mean, this is kind of 10 years on from from the how to peel a banana moment, because that was sort of the beginning of my journey. Um, And then 10 years on when I'd really been given my absolute all to this dream job, kind of working with Yotam, developing recipes, uh, kind of growing with him as as his kind of his his sort of columns and books, books grew. Um, And you know, really for a long time, I couldn't believe it was my job and I was so happy and I was giving it my all and had these twins who were growing up, had another uh, son called Casper who was growing up and and everything was kind of fine. Me and Chris both working very, very hard. We had a nanny who, Sophie, who was really kind of helping, helping the load. I live with my parents as well. So they were around and my brother, there's sort of a lot going on at home. Uh, but I had this kind of niggling, niggling feeling that like sort of life at home was slightly looking different from the the kind of family and life that I imagined I would have, and that I sort of the sort of sort of mother I thought I'd be. 
And I had this real moment on pancake day when uh, I think we'd spent the day at work kind of making pancakes or doing recipes or we would have done them earlier, but um, kind of teaching everyone else to, to make pancakes. And then I cycled home and got home after the pancake moment had happened and Sophie had already done it and the kids had had their pancakes and there was sort of, there was no moment for me to kind of be part of. And then I thought, I didn't even know if I could just kind of whip up some pancakes without a test kitchen recipe. And it was just a real moment of of me thinking, like, shit, have I kind of given my all to the wrong <laughs> to the wrong family? It's not my family. And uh, yeah, it was just a real moment for me that I wasn't making pancakes at home that Tuesday. I was making pancakes at work for other people. It's so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, imagine, I don't suppose Chris came home and thought, damn, I didn't make pancakes. No, he didn't. And I know that you were making pancakes elsewhere. And so that extends the the kind of the point there. But really what you're talking about is not being at home enough for those special moments, even if special moments are created by capitalism. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like um, you, you took your eye off, off the mothering ball. You couldn't stretch yourself enough in those two different spaces. And that puts a light on which space should you be in. Was there any point where you thought, actually, do you know what? I, 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 can't, I can't do it all. Yeah, I mean, I was coming to a real T-junction at work and at home as well, because I've always thought there's a slight kind of misconception about when it's most important for mothers to be around for kids. And I actually think as they get older, you kind of need to be around more than when they're they're younger, I think, um, in terms of just sort of catching those moments that, that you can't just parachute in and kind of get the highlights. It's, just, it's, it's kind of you know, you're needed less, but you're, it's kind of full-time availability, isn't it? So things were kind of coming to a head because because I was just about to really kind of launch my own career with the publication of Palestine, which was published on the 26th of March, 2020. So at the time where I was meant to be kind of really sort of reaping my own kind of rewards and really experiencing the pleasure with Sammy as, as sort of co-authors, um, obviously that was the day that we all went into lockdown. So everything changed um, but it wasn't really a controlled experiment because of the sort of the next two years. Since then, I, I've sort of stayed a bit more off grid because you don't so you don't sort of realise what you're missing until you see it. So I didn't really realise what I was missing in terms of the kids until I was around the whole time. I, and now, I, now there's no way I would get home at eight o'clock every night because you just miss it. You just miss it. <laughs> well, there is also the other side of that, isn't it? The lockdown, instead of, you know, you becoming this wonderful sort of party going, launch going, author in your own right, you are actually doing lockdown at home schooling. Absolute shit show. And yeah. actually, that's when I first saw your rhymes, because you were delighting people, but there was this undercurrent of, of what was really going on at home. And Well, actually, yeah, because the, the, fir- the first book I was writing was, it was kind of it was called 40 things I wish I'd known about turning 40 and and I was doing these rhymes that were very kind of fun fun format and this kind of this sort of ditty that kind of goes along and yet the content was quite dark and very much kind of midlife moments and there was a disconnect I think for publishers between this kind of jaunty form and content that actually was just not as fun. 
Which is crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, it is absolutely crazy. My favourite film, book, absolutely anything is when I'm entertained while somebody's hitting me hard in the chest at the same time, um, you know, gets there. Barbie last night. I went to see Barbie last night. There is a fantastic <laughs> example. Your third food moment is about two chapters in the book, how to make food taste good and how to host Christmas, a short guide to staying sane and their, their rhymes, which for you tell what it's like to connect with all the books out there written by women. Um, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the cookbook is written by women is a is a really huge thing for me. If I, I'm very often at lunch by myself, and I will always have a have a, a cookbook. Um, sort of very often, how to eat Nigella's kind of bible. Um, and there's so many books, whether it's Nora Ephron's Heartburn or Laurie Colwyn or MFK Fisher or B Wilson or Felicity Cloak or just so many. Um, Claire Finney had it recently, just just women who are sharing in in it all and being really honest about everything, about the shit show and the good bits. And and I was just rereading How to Eat introduction yesterday and it's just, just so honest. I thought it was just me who would spend a lot of time preparing, even shopping for very elaborate meals that just don't happen. I'll I'll plan them, I'll read about them, I'll lie in bed, and then they just don't happen. I mean, the food gets used in something else, and it's there in Nigella's introduction. And it's just so, I find it so reassuring and kind uh, that, that, w- that we're kind of honest with each other. There's just so little bullshit about the kind of the complex feelings about it all well it's the internal stuff isn't it and i love that about female writing um it's the the deliberations about stuff the 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 contradictions that we all have as women and the ability now to be able to be vulnerable enough to know that it's okay to write about those that it's fine you know we're we are more empowered we are doing more interesting things in the world so there's somehow this rather wonderful sort of dimension that we're allowed to give ourselves in in the way that we express ourselves and I know that a lot of men friends of mine are really quite envious of that um they they don't have that space at at the moment to to Mm. really sort of show who they are on all those different levels and to find an audience or a readership to go, yeah, me too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I can't think of, I can't think of, um, I'm looking now at my bookshelves, like Jeremy Lee's lovely book. It's, you know, it's, it's lovely, but it's all just sort of, yeah, there's not, there's not that vulnerability. And it's not those connection moments, you know, that's like, yeah, God, I do that too. Uh, I mean, how do you stay sane at Christmas, for example? (laughs) I mean, I love, I mean, everyone, I love the way Nigella talks about Christmas. Um, and I've taken on board one of her absolutely brilliant top tips, which is invite people who are not best friends, because then everyone just behaves so much better. Yeah, we definitely had that this Christmas. Um, <laughs> it's complete madness, isn't it? That people get sort of their knickers completely in a twist about basically a roast lunch with some extra sides. So I'm a real kind of planner and advanced so I will I will make my plan kind of four or five weeks beforehand 
um, and stick to it. I think kind of maintaining conviction is really important because then in the run up, you just see all these kind of articles and then suddenly think you need to completely kind of change everything. And it's all complete nonsense. But I mean, my kids joke about me at Christmas because I think I've turned into that mother where you have all this food. But then if anyone eats it at the wrong time, you get so cross. You're like, no, don't eat the food. And then and then suddenly, okay, eat the food. They're like, okay, eat the food. But we don't want to eat the food anymore. And then it's just this kind of bossing. And I'll put out these great big piles of crisps and dates. Like, don't eat the food. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, just keeping it, keeping it simple. Hey? Well, you I see, mean, the first top tip, and it's the most important one by far, is that you should remain the cook and the person that you are. Now, that is really complicated in itself and reveals so many contradictions. The person you are, the person you are as a cook, who are we as cooks? I mean, do you know who you are as a cook now? Uh, yes, I do. And I think I'm getting more, I also know who I am as a, as an eater as well, because I, I kind of eat differently to, to my kids and Chris and I think I used to be kind of embarrassed about that and they kind of tease me and sometimes I get sensitive about it but now actually I'm kind of owning it much more so they think my breakfast is completely like horrific and I'm just kind of owning it a lot more now. What is your breakfast time? Um, so my breakfast I don't have it the minute I wake up so I wake up and I I run off to the Lido and jump in the Lido and come back so I've, I've been awake for a couple of hours so I'm not waking up and eating baba ganoush but Basically, according to my kids, who've only just woken up when I get home, I am waking up and eating baba ganoush. But I'm having, I'm having a, so at the moment I'm having kind of, you know, a greens omelette. Uh, and then I have got, you know, there's baba ganoush, there's shatter, um, there's, there's a lot going on, but it's just not a, you know, it's, 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 it's a very, very savoury savory brunch by the time you're it's, eating. It's, yeah, but it's not instead of lunch. It's, uh, so I think I'm becoming more, I'm just sort of owning it more and, there was a time about a year ago when Casper said to me, oh, why don't you go on, you should go on um, Bake Off. And I was like, Casper, I'm the most awful baker because I just haven't got a sweet tooth at all. Like I'd be completely, I'd be the worst person ever on Bake Off. And then Scarlett, who's really funny, did this really hysterical riff on the cake that I would actually make. And it was basically kind of eight layers of aubergines done in different ways. And then there was this sort of, there was this sort of baba ganoush mousse in the middle. And before I might have been embarrassed or kind of, but actually I was on the floor laughing. And it was so nice to be kind of seen as like a sort of bit of a quirky, aubergine obsessed, lemon head mum. And for that to be kind of okay. Um, your fourth food and final food moment is how to make strawberry jam. But this is actually about your mince story, isn't it? It's about everyone has a signature dish and what happens if you don't? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if other people have the same and I have, you know, a bit less so now, but but not really. And when the kids were younger, I used to have like, honestly, dark nights of the soul about this question of kind of wanting kids to be like oh mum's this and mum's that and I love it when mum does this and just me knowing that Ossolengi food is just not the food that my four five-year-old six-year-old Clapham kids could be like oh mum's coriander we love it um and yet not being very good at the kind of you know always the lasagnas and the shepherd's pies yeah and then I was watching the film Wild Rose um, which is a great film with uh, Jessie Buckley. And, you know, she's lost her way a bit and she's got a son that she's trying to do goodbye, but she's kind of getting pulled in other directions. 
and then her son is looked after by her mum. And then the granny's made him bolognese, she'd made him mince. And then the grandson had said, uh, oh, I love mum's mince best, I love mum's mince. And then the Jesse Buckley character said, well, what are you talking about, mum? Like, my mince is your mince. Um, and I was really undone watching this film because I just thought, I haven't, I haven't got a mince that my kids love. And in fact, to this day, Theo's mince is uh, Sophie, who I had mentioned before. Our, our nanny used to make a turkey bolognese mince and his mince is her mince. And uh, like, he doesn't care. No one else cares apart from me. There's a whole lot of guilt and shame and meaning put onto this thing. It means so much to me because it's because it's my love language and yet there's no point in me having this love language if it's confused by this sort of tension and stress and and often dark nights of the soul about what is my mince <laughs> I have it exactly and and my daughter when I asked her um having read Claire Finney's book Hungry Heart which is really interesting wonderful memoir mm. about our relationships with food um, I asked my younger daughter Lulu who's 24 now um you know, what's your, what's your family meal? What do you associate with growing up? And she said, dad's lasagna. Dad's lasagna. I'm the cook. I love it. But, but strawberry jam. So is that what it's about? Um, so strawberry jam. So I live with my, I live in a kind of extended house with my mum and dad and my brother and his kids. Um, and so the strawberry jam making season comes around and I always make jam and my mum always makes jam. Um, and the kids always prefer her jam. And I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Why my jam is different. But then actually she's just got years more experience in making the jam. And again, I don't really care about jam because I wouldn't, you know, I'm having my baba ganoush. I'm not <laughs> slathering jam on my on my toast. And yet she's making it, but there's she's not kind of, I don't know, you know, I'm not kind of with her stirring the pot and I wasn't there holding on to her apron strings and all that really matters is that the kids are having uh, granny's jam like let them have that moment doesn't need to be kind of my my jam what a wonderful metaphor for matrescence you're not quite there yet with your jam but your (laughs) mum is your mum's jam is the one the kids prefer is that how it feels then then actually you know if if mum was in the room she'd be you know she might have jam but she'll be thinking of all the dishes that she's feeling insecure making because because they're my my dishes and it's all a nonsense isn't it it's kind of it is all a nonsense but just to extend that metaphor where are you i mean it's really a, an unusual situation that you should be living with your mother you know there's plenty of cultures around the world where people do live with their um, extended family and you know that's really interesting but how is it living with your mother watching her mother you while you're feeling all these complicated issues and you're still at that stage where you're you're mothering kids at the, the stage i i agree with you that they need the most attention you're you know 11 and, and 15 year old twins how how are you with your matrescence um i'm loving this stage actually just because it's much easier to to be kind of honest and have conversations and and uh after the kids got their reports this year after school, I got them to give me a report because they, my kids got, they got some eyes, which means inconsistent. And they were a bit sort of unimpressed by that. But anyway, I told them to do a report for me and I came out with quite a few eyes as well, which is what I was hoping they would do because I wanted to say like, it's okay to be inconsistent. <laughs> like that is, that is so okay with me. I'm all about just normal. And if that means inconsistent, that's that's fine and so I actually quite like having having 14 15 year olds where 
where they kind of know that I'm just rubbish at night and that if they want anything from me, it's just not going to happen after 9 9 p.m. And also if my parents come into our, because there's not very many boundaries in our house, and if they come in and do something or say something that that makes me feel like a sort of 15-year-old myself rather than a 45-year-old mother of three, I can have conversations with my kids about that, kind of using we can kind of have a bit of a meta conversation about what's what's happened so so it's I, I'm finding it's all getting getting better and easier um you know brackets often complete shit show but um but yeah I do find being a mother daughter sister and wife all in one space a lot and I think that explains why I jump in cold water as much as I can because but then again I, I think it's useful for the kids to see that I am, and we all are different things. And I tell my kids to all be nice to each other and then my brother comes in and I kind of revert back to this 11-year-old who's just slightly kind of bickering with my brother. It's good. I think it's good for them to kind of grow up with the, the chaos and for them to see that it all kind of somehow works, even though it's completely not seamless and perfect. Thanks for listening. Head over to my Substack to get some extra bites from Tara and all my guests on Cookie Books. See you next week.